hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week is a Patreon request episode. We kind of give people the option of uh, hiring us to do an episode about their favourite movie or TV show. This one was a TV show. It's I, Claudius, which is a classic 1970s BBC historical drama. The original, like really iconic swords and sandals epic, but more in the sort of talky side and less swords. It's a Roman history drama starring various illustrious members of the British acting establishment like Brian Blessed, Derek Jacobi, John Hurt and uh, Patrick Stewart and John Rhys-Davies, all these people who became really famous sort of later on. So we watched the first three episodes for this review and it's kind of taking place during the reign of Augustus narrated by the Emperor Claudius and if this all sounds confusing to those who do not have a deep historical background We will be talking a lot about Roman history in this episode because we're aware that most listeners will not have watched the 1976 classic I, Claudius. Uh, So this will be an educational podcast. Uh, Yes, I came to this as someone who knows virtually nothing about Roman history in this sense. So I studied art history in high school in a very advanced way. It was a very intense class. And we studied Roman history through art as you do. So I am familiar with like the phases of Roman art and how emperors liked to... De- I mean, I treasured you taking me to the Metropolitan Museum and bringing me to your quote unquote favorite statue of a Roman emperor. <laughs> I was thinking of this. We will link to uh, a photo of this wonderful gentleman. <laughs> He's very ugly. <laughs> so like my ideas about like ancient Rome because it wasn't something that I studied very much was through the lens of like how does their art compare to the Greeks and how did it impact you know later generations and so the statue that we're talking about is of one of the later emperors and the sort of classic thing that you get taught in art history is the there's a famous statue of Marcus Aurelius that many of you would recognize where he's sort of holding his arm up and he looks very noble and like classically beautiful. And then as the empire goes on, all the emperors go crazy, which is something that people generally know, but you can see that reflected in the art. And there's this statue where this like man with a giant, giant torso, because they got <laughs> like, I mean, it's just hideous because they were all sort of wrapped up in their ideas of like what it meant to be an impressive man. And so that kind of stuff I am familiar with and find really interesting, but the nitty gritty of like who was in charge of Rome at what time and the successions and whatever is not something I know anything about. And I did find that to be a slight disadvantage, I would say, coming into this this, uh, television show because I did not know who any of these people were at all. (laughs) Yeah, so like when I was watching, I... I'm familiar with Roman history. Like I did a degree in sort of ancient history and kind of classics and that sort of thing. And I generally have an interest, um, fortunately. (laughs) But when I was watching this, I was just thinking, although there is plenty of the descriptive exposition dialogue, like, ah, Julia, wife of my cousin's (laughs) aunt, you know, this kind of thing. um, It really does sort of expect a level of knowledge that is basically the opposite to a contemporary historical drama. Um, And it felt in that sense, not dated in a bad way, but dated in quite an interesting way where it is designed around 
an assumption that the audience has gone through the British public school system <laughs> where it's like the whole thing is like it is so English like every character um first of all it's adapted from a historical novel by an English writer named Robert Graves it was like a big bestseller a lot of people would already have read it also especially in the kind of mid 20th century British private schools were fucking obsessed with the Roman Empire because it's all tied up in like the ideas of the origins of the British Empire and people love to be really impressed by all the statesman-like nation building and whatever and also the performances that are given by basically everyone especially the men in this show are very much just like watching the Houses of Parliament because they all (laughs) have the plummy English accents and they've all got theatre training and while the actors themselves are not posh necessarily they know like the right cadence of speech and the way they behave and stuff and even some of the writing is less like watching a roman orgy and more like watching just like a bunch of people like passing port left round a table um and that sort of thing so it's very informed by british culture in this way that's like somewhat intentional and somewhat literally just assuming that everyone's gonna be like ah yes of course i know who plotius is and it's like no one fucking knows who plotius <laughs> is <laughs> Um, so kind of before we go into some more like TV reviewish type stuff and how this is like a precursor to all these shows like Game of Thrones and Rome and what have you, I will give everyone a Roman history lecture. Please. <laughs> and Morgan specifically. So like Morgan's like, I love to come home and learn, <laughs> <laughs> learn about Roman history from my pen pal. <laughs> um, Let's do yeah. it. So I've got, I've made myself a little series of like homework essay questions and bullet points, just like I'm a lecturer. The one and only time I will teach anyone anything. (laughs) Question one, who is Claudius? Um, The titular character. Um, He is, he's someone who in the show, as it's framed, he's kind of the narrator and he's narrating things from like his old age. So in the first episode, he's not been born yet. And then he's still a kid in the second two. Um, but he was one of the emperors. He's part of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which is um, this period of 40 or 50 years when there was several different emperors in quick succession who were not the son of the last one. So they were all like the adopted great nephew or something. And it was this very dramatic period where each emperor was trying to find the right person to be their successor. But then loads of people in the intervening stages were assassinated or died under weird circumstances or just died because it was like whatever BC. So people did not have great like health, healthy lifestyles. Um, but Claudius specifically was someone who no one really ever expected to be the emperor. He was one of these young men that were sort of in the peripheries of the political establishment. But when he was a child, he had physical disabilities. You know, he had a limp. He had a really pronounced stutter and he was labeled a quote unquote idiot by a lot of people around him. So he wasn't really respected and he was sort of shunted off to the side. But due to various circumstances, which I will not bother explaining, other people who were in line either became emperor temporarily and then died or just died in general. So Claudius did end up being emperor. He wasn't too bad at it. He was actually pretty smart and he became this historian, which is why he's the person that Robert Graves decided to make the narrator of these books because he's like, he's portrayed as this rather sort of stuffy academic type. And this story specifically takes place just after the foundation of the Roman Empire. Like there was this period of 500 years around like 500 BC to like the turn of the millennium where there was the Roman Republic, which didn't technically have an emperor. It was like this vaguely sort of democratic-ish system, although not in like the modern sense. There were there was like a Senate and whatever. And then the empire happened kind of after Julius Caesar, 
you have this period of melodrama, which is when the, t- the HBO show Rome takes place. Uh, and then Augustus becomes emperor and everyone's terribly impressed by him because he understands how to build an empire and form a legacy and whatever. And he's the person that all these British military historians are super impressed by because everyone likes to imagine themselves as like the nation builder who created an, an empire that covered 20% of the known world. And this whole show is about him trying to figure out, first of all, who will take over the empire after him and then the power struggle that happens after he dies. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to any of the fun parts to do with Caligula, who is going to show up relatively soon. He's played by John Hurt. We only saw the early parts, which are to do with Brian Blessed, shockingly without a beard, playing Augustus. And his wife, Livia, who I think was Morgan's favourite character, very understandably, is in this show basically portrayed as like a supervillainous, like conniving evil old lady, which is a heavily fictionalised description of her she was known to be very intelligent but the the idea of her assassinating absolutely everyone is definitely a conspiracy theory but i respect it because it makes good television (laughs) (laughs) yes she was the only character i found to be like as a character deeply compelling and the actress who's called sean phillips I just found delicious. Like she was so, she's so fun, <laughs> wonderfully evil, and I think because there are were a couple other women in the episodes that we watched, but they didn't, for the most part, have a ton to do, and they looked and acted more distinct from each other than many of the men did. Like it was, I have unbelievably good, um like facial recognition i don't have trouble like differentiating differentiating actors from each other even when they look similar i recognize people from many years ago if i like see them on the street and i was watching this and i was just like who are some of these people (laughs) it was hard to keep track yeah it's a classic problem in british historical dramas because yeah it's like everyone is a white man and none of them have super distinguishing features. And the stylists are like, they've got to be having the same haircut. Because everyone the in Rome's got to have the same haircut. They it's like, all I can't. have the same haircut. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and also, one of the, like, along with being really distinctive, uh, like Livia, she's one of the few characters who's just played by the same actress throughout. Some of them, they're like, you start the show as an adult, so they just give them a bit of like gray hair and old age makeup. But there's quite a lot of major players who are played by child actors and then aged up even in the first three episodes. And that makes it kind of doubly hard to really know who's who. Yes. And as you say, she is very, like they give her old age makeup, but she's very much the same person the entire time down to not having any character growth at all. But that makes sense for who she's playing because her entire role is to just be like a conniving evil woman who murders everyone she knows so and be the power behind the throne yeah it's like i think it's like obviously there's no way to know for sure how people's relationships were 2000 years ago but sort of the the general gist of her relationship with augustus is that it's meant to be thought like it is thought to be sort of a real marriage of the minds you know because she wasn't producing any viable heirs for him and he would not have had any qualms about getting a new wife. You know, in, in the show, we literally see him like forcing people to get divorces so they can marry someone better, you know, whereas he sticks by her and she was kind of generally thought to have had a lot of influence on his political decisions. And that continued later on. And we do know that she really wanted um, her son, who was not his son, um, to kind of become the emperor later. And that's sort of her motive 
throughout this series, um, which is translated with heavy fictionalization into her just assassinating basically everyone and like manipulating people with blackmail to like get them taken out of the city. I mean, all this stuff did happen. It's just the motives have been like gently nudged into a more dramatic, which is perfectly fine. That is how historical drama works. One may debate whether it's necessary or not, but I'm certainly not going to make any bones over it. <laughs> no. Particularly when so much of the rest of the show in these early episodes is like men having discussions about politics in a way that I did not find quite dry. Yeah. I feel like I feel I felt a little bit mean when I was watching by the third episode I was definitely getting more into it, but the first episode felt very kind of slow and dry to me and I felt like I don't want to be mean to like our amazing Patreon uh, sponsor Samantha who clearly loves this show so much and I was like, I don't I don't I feel like such a kind of like like such a millennial because I'm just like <laughs> I think I prefer Rome, which is all sex and violence, even though Rome is, you know, legitimately really good. But also this this show is a lot of um 1970s British stage actors bringing what I would really describe as a stage performance like there's a lot of vocal projecting and kind of like body language from people who maybe haven't like done TV before because it was the 70s which I think kind of adds to like a certain tone yes I definitely found some of the acting distracting in that way although it was certainly historically interesting from a TV perspective like I Mm. haven't watched very much television from that period, which is also interesting to think about in terms of like media that has survived, right? Like this well, was. Have you watched American TV from the seventies, like Starsky and Hutch and stuff like that? Or no, like... I have seen some. I have seen some earlier TV. I've seen some of the Dick Van Dyke show, which is super super fun, and is like obviously some of the gender politics have not aged well, but in general, I think it's very watchable. Still, it's just like clearly of a time. Stylistically, I mean, though also politically. Uh, and I've seen, like, Monty Python, which is very much its own unique uh, Oh, yeah, that's thing. really... It's not... Yeah, <laughs> it's outside the norm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it just... It, it's not the same thing as movies, right? Which are so readily available. I mean, now you can get anything. Like, this was not hard to access, but it's so easy to watch a two-hour film from any point in the history of cinema because you find it and it's two hours long and it's not a big ask. Whereas TV is much more time-consuming and also, like, we think of the birth of, like, good television as being, like, The Sopranos, right? Yeah. Or, as other people have argued, like the teenage girl renaissance in the 90s, which was like my so-called life at Buffy and like mm-hmm. those kinds of shows. But basically like the late 90s, early 2000s is where our sort of cultural conception of like television really begins. And it's not that there wasn't good stuff being made before that. It's just that the medium really did like radically shift around the, that time and became much more cinematic. Although I hate when people call television cinematic like it is definitely true that there was a change and i I, this show definitely doesn't look like visually it does not look good right right but it is long-form storytelling in a way that really i mean it's definitely like the equivalent of prestige drama like it is a prestige show basically by definition i was kind of looking up popular british tv from the 1970s 
And it was really interesting to me because there was literally, there are literally no dramas that I feel like really survived in the public mindset from the 70s. Stuff that people remember from British television from then are all sitcoms or comedy. So like Monty Python, obviously, like Faulty Towers, Dad's Army, and, and the Benny Hill show, which obviously is not revered anymore, but was like colossally popular and is famous. It's like this dumb, not particularly sexy sex comedy show. But um, they're all sitcoms and they all like still air in reruns and are really corny and like beloved by older people. But in terms of dramas, I had heard of iClaudius and I know that a lot of people um, still like watch it. It's the kind of thing you can actually get in a box set, but there's no like big kind of dramas apart from that until you reach like well after that. Well, the two that exist, which are both from the early 80s, maybe, the, maybe well, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was late 70s, yeah. I think. And that is certainly still watched yeah. and then Brideshead revisited in the 80s yeah but those are the two dramas that I definitely think of yeah. well in the 80s you start getting stuff like uh, like the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes yeah and I don't know if House of Cards started in the late 80s or early 90s but British House of Cards is a fucking masterpiece and it's better than the American one it is like incredibly good like by modern standards but I think it, it does actually kind of illustrate the way in which British TV was sort of and still is sort of behind American TV in a way and that's obviously like mostly just because we don't have the pool of resources and money that Hollywood has like just as a city um but it's something I've been thinking about more recently because I live with this with a British TV screenwriter and she has to like keep track and watch all of the stuff that's on (laughs) and it's so fucking limited in Britain like if you look at all the TV shows that are getting made each year there's really good actors but they're almost all in a crime thriller. <laughs> it's like virtually all in a crime thriller. Occasionally there will be like one or two sci-fi shows made, usually not great. Like everything is six episodes long, of course, as everyone knows about British TV. And there'll be like a couple of historical adaptations. And that's basically it. You will get some gritty dramas, but it's it's definitely not as kind of experimental and fun as you see the variety in America, even though obviously like American TV is turning out like a vast amount of banal garbage. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly correct. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about the stuff that people talk about in American television from the past too, from pre a certain era, like this is not my area of specialty at all, but I think it is mostly comedy also, right? Well, like, I feel like there's sort of like the... Aaron Spelling shows of the of the 70s and 80s. Aaron Spelling is this mega producer who basically revitalized TV in America. And he created um, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, um, Dynasty, Beverly Hills, 90210, and then Charmed um, by the kind of 90s. And I, I thought that he also did Starsky and Hutch, but Wikipedia doesn't seem to suggest that. But anyway, it's this kind of period where there were suddenly all these like light-hearted but like did kind of have a story shows that were soapy but not like a daytime soap and that's kind of what I think of as like vintage tv that people really love and there's like a really clear lineage that's separate from the gajillions of crime procedurals that now rule the roost well yeah so there's that kind of stuff like Beverly Hills 90210 as you say which is 90s but is in this general vein and like the Starsky and Hutch thing but those are like Starsky and Hutch gets remembered in a comedy way, I think. Even if it's not, like, a sitcom, right? Mm. And then all the sitcoms, like the Mary Tyler Moore Show or the Dick Van Dyke Show 
or even, I mean, until recently, like the Cosby show was still something that people mm-hmm. really like loved and talked about and had a huge impact or like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was obviously a little bit later. Like it is interesting or even like MASH, right? Which is in this weird kind of middle ground of, of genres that dramas, they just, I think had a lot of harder time like making. And then also just culturally like television was the thing. Yeah. You that, put, like, like, straight drama goes in a movie. Yeah, and, yeah. like, the family got around the TV, and everyone was happy. And it was this, like, weird And, like, but, like, thing. in Britain, there's Doctor Who, and in America, there's Star Trek, and those are the two non-comedies that survived, because everyone fucking <laughs> loves. Because yes. they, are, they are great. <laughs> yes. But the flip side of this that's kind of funny to me is that I often think humor dates worse It than sure drama. fucking does. Like, it does. Right. But then because watch... if I try to watch any classic British sitcom, I'm like, I just want to die. Yeah. Um, but watching this, I felt it had dated quite poorly. Sorry to Samantha, who paid us to watch this. Um, and not just because of the production values, which, like, that kind of is what it is. Like, it is a big Yeah, shift, I can easily ignore right? production values. Like, um, something like the early seasons of the new doctor who which i love like they had absolutely no money and it did not matter at all but i think the biggest thing is pacing and then the acting which is so stagey because that's what all these people were used to doing because mm-hmm. theater well because television was so blocked off for the most part that then doing something like this which was like prestige as you say that wasn't normal, right? Like now movie stars do TV all the time and then TV stars will get to do a movie and then like all those people go up to Broadway, like, you know, Army Hammer this summer, right? And then like do a Broadway show. But TV was not as respected at all as the other mediums. So... Oh, and there was still this period, like obviously the 70s is much later than that, but there was this period in like the early kind of 20 years of TV where like a TV drama would literally be like a teleplay. So they would have it like set out like a theatrical performance and they'd either film it literally live or they'd be staging it in the same way as like a live drama in a three dimensional set. And then they would just be performing it like that, which is very different from the way that a film is edited. Yes. And so I imagine getting all these people that this was treated sort of differently than a lot of other TV productions and that they were used to a different kind of thing. And so they kind of acted clearly the way they were used to acting. And I think it probably would have worked much better on stage, but some of the performances just don't really translate to me to the small screen because you can just see, you can see it too much. Like it's just so like um, Augustus in particular there are some moments where it's just like, oh. Well, have you seen Brian Blessed in anything else? No. Okay, so Brian Blessed is a British cultural institution. I've and heard I of would him. I just confirm for that. you now that his performance style is that. Yeah. And <laughs> he is he is well, a renowned bellower. Usually, usually yeah. I think the, the thing that's puzzling about this, I think this was one of his earlier roles, maybe, must have been. And he usually has a much larger, bushier beard. 
Um, But what happened, I think, possibly very soon after this is casting directors understood precisely the correct type of role to cast him in. So he plays, you know, if you've if you've seen if you've you've heard the Flash Gordon song by Queen, the person bellowing Gordon's alive is him. Uh, And he is in the Flash Gordon movie wearing like some ridiculous outfit and, you know, bellowing and hitting people with swords and so forth. And that is a role which he has just recreated in many dramas and is wonderful (laughs) at it. He's climbed Mount Everest multiple times. He's an excellent boxer. He's socialized with the Dalai Lama on a regular basis. He is he is our version of that guy who advertises beer as a fake hero in America. Um, but he is actually that good. Well, that sounds amazing. Yeah, so... he's a delight. But um, you don't expect like the Patrick Stewart experience with him. You expect no. the Brian Blessed experience, <laughs> which is him shouting, Who here has not slept with my daughter? <laughs> and then flinging something. <laughs> He sure does do that. That he does delivers happen. A line. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that was that's a big, big moment for him. Oh boy, yes, yeah. I mean, he was the one who stuck out to me the most, which now makes sense. But some of the supporting characters also seem quite stagey, and then you can sort of see the whole set also, which. Again, production values, whatever, but because they're acting in a stagey way and you can kind of see the like, stage in quotes. Well, I don't think they were using a, bit... a boom mic because there were scenes yeah. where people who were the older actors knew to project their voice and the younger actors didn't. So there's someone who was in the background, like wouldn't have their voice. This is a nitpick that we shouldn't be focusing on. But I was like, this is the first time I've ever watched a TV show where I can tell where the boom mic isn't. <laughs> I had to put the subtitles on. Because there was stuff that I was like, I literally cannot hear what this person is saying. (laughs) Which is also like... That being said, I think the show does pick up as it progresses. I think basically what we've learned from this episode is, first of all, I'm sorry if we were mean about the show, Samantha. And secondly, if people want to commission us for like TV shows rather than movies, I think it's best if it's the kind of show where you can just watch like standalone episodes rather than it being a section of an overarching drama. Because it's kind of harder to get like a gauge of the whole series and we unfortunately do not have the time to watch like 12 hours of i claudius yes uh, <laughs> but yeah we, it's, it's it's a little harder to to talk about yeah and i did i definitely did find the last episode to be the most entertaining by quite a bit and then you also do get Derek jacoby actually acting more yes in that last one who plays claudius and is a very revered british theater actor and is not doing as much of the like theater acting as some of the other people. Like it's still a big performance, but it's like he's very good, and it, things do pick up quite a bit in that one, I think. And it was interesting also just watching those first few and thinking about the way TV drama has changed over time. That this is obviously. Or it seemed to me, I have not read the book, so maybe I'm completely wrong. I suspect this is quite a faithful adaptation of those novels. Yeah. I mean, it's based on two books, which are quite long, and this is 12 hours. So, like, obviously they have to have cut, I'm sure, quite a bit of stuff. But not as much as you would have if you were doing, like, a film, right? And so the first couple hours are setting everything up. And now, if you have a show, even a miniseries, right, the pilot has to hook people 
immediately. Like, you have to make that first episode so entertaining that people want to keep watching your show. Because otherwise, they can watch one of the other, like, 475 scripted television shows that air in the United States every year, which is insane. I mean, there's definitely, like, an audience attention span thing. And also definitely, like, watching this, you if you can kind of get into the mindset of the average viewer in 1976, this may well be the first time, any like, any of them have watched a long-form historical drama. So the expectation, you're already like, I'm going into this where I need to focus on like an intellectual show. And also you only have four channels, so it's not like you're going to switch over and be like, I bet there's something better next door. Well, right, the BBC puts this on and it's the thing. It's the event of like the year in television. And so everybody watches it. Whereas now there's a much higher degree of difficulty, I think in those in in general but also specifically in those early episodes in terms of like really hooking you and that's why pilot episodes are famously so difficult to write and also famously always bad because it's just impossible to do and in general i think it's always wise to give shows a couple episodes unless you so virulently hate the first episode that you're just like i can't do this but the way the first episode of this is structured bears no resemblance to normal pilot structure now like it's just a different thing in a way that i think probably to modern audiences would work better in the book like i was sort of watching it and i was like i bet this book is really amazing because when you're reading a novel obviously you have to still be interested from the beginning but it can start much more sort of ruminatively and slowly and whatever and if it's written well and seems like it's going to be interesting you probably will stick with it but we are so programmed to want instant gratification now that if like yeah. the first episode isn't immediately great, you're like, ah, next thing. It's <laughs> so, like 10 years before this, the American, I just remembered the American version of this, which is just so indicative of our cultural differences. Um, so this was, I would say probably two years before Star Trek aired. So it was like the early mid sixties. And it is, it was the, it, it was meant to be the pilot for a TV series, but it wasn't picked up. So it was just a TV movie. And it was going to be a dramatized like biopic series about Alexander the Great. And it starred William Shatner and Adam West, aka Batman. <laughs> it was ba- it was William Shatner's first like really big role. Um, he'd done like guest spots and other stuff. And he was, ha- he was hired, I think specifically, first of all, because he's like a beautiful golden boy, but also he is an expert horseman. He is very good at riding horses, um, which is why when he got to direct a Star Trek film, which was an interesting creative choice on the part of the studio, <laughs> he was like, we've got to have a horse scene. And everyone was like, Shatner, you're a 50-year-old egomaniac, but we can't say no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's kind of, it's tonally, it's a lot like a spaghetti Western. There's just loads of like horse riding and action and like sort of corny, like people, like there's loads of wrestling and that sort of thing. And when they tried to introduce everyone, they was like, it's clearly whoever worked at the TV studio was like, well we don't like any of this real history stuff. So they just like change all these like historical figures names for no reason. But they introduce them all in detail and they try and set out like this massive war in the space of like one pilot episode. I think they, they, they did something where like they tried to remove the kind of homoerotic nature of like Alexander's relationship with Feiston, but then they just replaced it with another even gayer relationship. So it was like, <laughs> it was obviously it was a mess, but I was just like, it just really shows the different ways in which our our TV cultures have evolved side by side. <laughs> oh my god, that sounds uh, 
That sounds interesting. <laughs> Whereas with iClaudius, you really can see how it's providing, you know, the set kind of starting blocks for the way that the modern versions of this type of show work. And it's so obvious how influential it is because even though obviously the genre of sort of historical dramas that are about wars of succession is like a very tried and true genre and like loads of people have seen like movies along the lines of The Lion in Winter and so forth. This definitely is the larval stage of TV shows like Rome or the Tudors or whatever. Where or it's like kind of vaguely familiar. Game of figures. Thrones. Yeah, and right? obviously Game of Thrones. Yeah. This is Game of Thrones. Like this yeah. watching like the starting part of I Claudius, it's like it starts off with this three or four minutes of just pure exposition from an old white guy and segues instantly into a bunch of topless dancing girls. And I was just like, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Game of Thrones. <laughs> yep. They just yep. clearly couldn't afford more fighting because, like, there's no real, there's no real fights. Well, yeah, every time that they have like a big crowd scene, because of course you have all the Roman emperors like standing in front of the masses, you know, at a parade or a gladiator fight or whatever. They just have applause and then show them like yeah, waving. They, they did not. They did not hire the masses, which is right, like, understandable. They have they done what they can with what they have. Yeah, no money. Another sign of the changing times, which is that now studios will spend, like, millions and millions of dollars on a single episode of television. But, like, so what's so weird, right? It's like, this this year, like, there was two really expensive British The New Game of Thrones shows. Because obviously everyone wants New Game of Thrones, which is why Jeff Bezos spent half a billion dollars in Lord of the Rings. We will not go into that. But this year, there was Britannia, which was advertised heavily in cinemas and looked cheesy as hell and very entertaining. And it's like an absolute garbage show, which is like you know historic somewhat roman kind of period when the romans came to britain and then a bunch of druids and lots of people dancing sexually around a fire and like massive battles and it's like fine but the one i watched unfortunately was the trojan war show which was so hyped up it was on the bbc it's now on netflix allegedly was going to be the next game of thrones all the kind of the 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 kind of preamble for it was like yeah we've written this really like powerful reimagining of the trojan war there was all this like hype and controversy over the fact that they'd cast a black man as achilles and also like they were like yeah we've got this like it's all a romance there's this really powerful love story uh between paris and helen and i watched the pilot and i was like it was actually stunning how incompetent this show was (laughs) like the character like first of all almost everyone is a no-name actor which is not like a bad thing intrinsically, but you could tell why they were no-name actors because they were just giving like a nothing performance. Oh, the the no. protagonist, like I think, I think, I think Paris must have been the protagonist, but he was like boring as shit. Um, it was also mostly white people, so the whole thing that you've gone on about where it's like, oh yeah, like British TV is actually really, really pretty good at diverse casting and historical dramas, like compared to America. But it was like not that big deal, and like Achilles clearly wasn't going to be in it for like three episodes. It was just so boring, and the female characters were dull as hell, and there was literally zero romance. They just sort of looked at each other and were like, wow, I just just feel really horny now. <laughs> and it was just like it was such trash. And I was like, I hate to say this, but Game of Thrones, a show that I disapprove of on principle, is better than this. <laughs> Game of Thrones has entertained me historically. <laughs> yes. I watched a few seasons and was entertained yeah, by it. And then it, it was did. just a diminishing returns sort of situation. And I, the thing is, I like the sort of thing that Game of Thrones is. I just, you know, it, it definitely diminishing returns. And also, like, I had to skip quite a lot of storylines because I don't like to watch rape scenes. And I also don't like to watch boring parts. <laughs> well, yes. At a certain <laughs> point, there are so many storylines with rape scenes 
and boring parts that then you can't watch the show anymore, which was yeah. the problem. Yeah. I, 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 I skipped a significant portion in the middle and then I returned for last season, which I watched for work. And I was shocked because I was like, I remember this show was definitely good if flawed in earlier seasons. And the most recent one was just awful. The dialogue was just like, I was just like, what is happening? You're just, this is an insult to everyone involved. <laughs> and then they won the best drama Emmy. I'm going to say Emmy winning television. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. We've, we've strayed far afield of our topic here. Um, do we have anything else to say about this? I, I don't think. believe so. Do you have any Roman history questions? I It's obviously I a toss-up so. whether I can answer because I'm not actually an expert. I <laughs> was very impressed with the, the level of, of knowledge that you provided <laughs> earlier. So good job, Gavia. Is there, a, is there a Roman history story that you want to tell to, to close us out here that we have not touched upon? I can't think of anything because I, I I feel like it would have been because we got, this the starting point of this is quite dry, and then the point where things probably really heat up is when Caligula shows up because he's one of the famously mad horny emperors, and probably he wasn't even that much madder or hornier than the others. But as we all know, power corrupts, and yes. he was like a twenty something when he became emperor and then was assassinated. So like that's never that's never a great time. Um. What I would recommend, actually, somewhat off topic, but in the general lineage of British television in the ancient Romans, is just go to the Horrible Histories on YouTube. Um, if you ever read the Horrible Histories books as a kid, they're great. I loved them when I was a child. Much more educational than much of my formal education. Um, but there's a brilliant like BBC, nominally children's show, but essentially is like an all-ages sketch comedy musical show. And if you want to lo- learn anything about ancient Rome, you should learn about it from the Horrible Histories musical page. Um, I'll link to like a couple of my faves in the show notes, but honestly, it is the best way to learn anything. I mean, you can memorize all the English kings if you so want in musical order. You can learn about the evils of colonialism from from a song by Queen from Queen Victoria. There's a Charles II rap. It's great. Look, all American children learned about civics from Schoolhouse Rock, so I am not here to judge you. That sounds fine. (laughs) I went to Horrible History's live show, and it ruled. I was like 20. (laughs) And so was a lot of the audience. (laughs) And it did not air when we were children. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. I think that's a great note to end this podcast on. Thanks again to Samantha for funding this. I'm sorry we did not like this show more, but you can't win them all. Um, If you would like to force us to watch something that we may or may not like, you too can do that at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Or you could give us a smaller amount of money. Whatever you like, we greatly appreciate it. One beautiful, shiny golden dollar. Yes. I love to have one dollar. Next week, we will be discussing the new Netflix show Maniac, directed by Carrie Jodi Fukunaga and starring Emma Stone and Jonah Hill. I'm very intrigued by this because I adore Carrie Fukunaga and I do not adore Jonah Hill. But my love of Carrie Fukunaga is stronger than my general distaste for Jonah Hill. So that's and fine. I have no strong feelings about any of these people because I have not watched the Detective Man show that Carrie Fukunaga made, although I've heard he's wonderful. Um, and I fully believe this because he sounds wonderful. However, the fact that this show looks and sounds very weird appeals to me because I enjoy weird. Um, 
I think that Kerry Fukunaga's direction of the first True Detective series was amazing, but the reason that he is truly, truly near and dear to my heart is that he directed the 2011 Jane Eyre, starring Mia Wojcikowska. Ah, uh, okay. And Michael Fassbender. Yes, which is a masterpiece. And also other great films. He's just a, like, he's just a genius. It, I don't understand how his brain works. So I'm very excited for this very bizarre looking show. I mean, we'll be back next week talking about that. It is on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix account, you can check it out. And otherwise, you can find us at our website, overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.